Let's start. Let's start. I'm going to hang myself on this thing one day. Take the thing off. Let's start over and get. Put your glasses yeah, put off. Put it in there. That's good. Are there any prayer requests tonight? This is after 40 years of asking my wife to stop fussing. I know you guys wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> any prayers, any prayer requests? I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. It's always, holidays I think are a tough time, but there's a lot to be thankful for, even with, even with the mess our country's in. But. Anybody? Yeah, yeah, Mike. We lost, we lost a parishioner and a friend here at San Luis Potosi just before Thanksgiving. His name is Tim Stopper. Tim Stopper. Yeah, he leaves a, a, a wife and three children. How old? High school, no. college age. He was? No, his children. Yeah, he's he's forty-five. Say his name again, Steve. Sorry. Say his name again. Tim. Tim Stopper. Tim. Paul and Cheryl, there are lots of spaces up here closer. <laughs> now, now that you've said that, now that you've said that, I'm going to pick up the microphone and I'm going to do the lecture from that table back there. <laughs> you're, you're, you're asking the wrong person for sympathy here because my attitude is, <laughs> I was in the Marines. <laughs> That doesn't that doesn't say everything. <laughs> Any other prayers? Uh, just Thanksgiving for my son to cover him yeah. from all his ills. Yeah, I'm glad he's. I actually thought I was going to a funeral. Really? Yeah, because they called me from Pampa Sunday after I got home from church to tell me that uh, he he was already intubated and his organs were failing. Wow. Oh. This is David. What's his name? David. David, yeah. How old is he, Mary? Sorry? We pray for him. I know, but how old is he? 29. 29, yeah. He's a long-haul truck driver. Yep. He had pneumonia. He was in Des Moines, Iowa. He works three and a half weeks on the road, and then he comes home. And he came home and rested for a week with that pneumonia. And then they called him. He went back on a Thursday night, and Saturday he's already yeah. And he got influenza A on top of that, double pneumonia. It just all came back. I'm glad he's recovering, and I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. so bad they couldn't take care of him in Tampa, so they had to ship him to Midland on an airplane because he had to be in a pressurized cabin. 
So wow. I went to Pamphlet, then to Midland, and then I spent all week there and came home. Wow. But I went to Mass every day at 12 noon at Our Lady of Guadalupe, and the pastor, you, you, could, you could offer prayers. They would ask anybody in the congregation, so everybody prayed for him every day. And the pastor came up to me and asked me if I needed anything. I said, I'd like a place to stay. And a parishioner came forward. Oh, wow. And I stayed with them. How nice. All wow. week in Midlands. How so nice. God. It was really great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing. Okay. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, we are glad to be together again um, in your presence. Um, I offer special thanksgiving for um, the thanksgiving we've all had. Um, I hope it was thanksgiving filled. Our church asks us to do something not easy and that most people don't understand. To always be everywhere grateful and thankful, glad. Whatever's going on. Um, we know that from our church. I think Boethius had a hand in that. You know, there's no bad fortune. Our God is good and always at work. Um, I ask a special grace for all of us. <laughs> this is... <laughs> um, pardon whatever failings of self-restraint on eating tonight in all of us. Um, when this group comes together, I think we're glad to be together. And it's, it's always a joy to receive the food that everybody brings. Karen's sliders are especially good today. For the great goodness behind all of this, the great giving um, in our church, um, I ask a special grace that um, we make special efforts to deny ourselves, put ourselves away, even if they're small things. Um, small things are not small concerning spiritual matters. Any efforts to um, draw closer to you, to give our wills to what you ask of us, those are um, grace-filled moments, grace-filled things. So um, watch over us all. Um, let this period of Advent be a time of growing closer to you and to each other through you. Um, offer a special prayer for, it's Tim. Tim, receive him. Um, if he was a part of this congregation, um, he wanted to be with you. Um, let this parting um, be seen as his going home, that he's going home. It's where we all long to be. Paul was so great in wanting to stay here so that he could help more people want to go home. Receive him into your kingdom. Um, if there's a purgatory, let our prayers help. Um, and let him take a joy um, in, in his penance, um, especially knowing that we've got a group here praying for him. Um, that's our mystical body. It goes on for all of us. And offer a special um, thanksgiving for Mary and her son um, for the way you watch out for her. No surprise. How can you not watch out for her? She, <laughs> her? Her love of you is so fixed, so deep, so stubborn, and so good, so gracious. So for all the kindness that you showed her and her son um, this last week, thank you. We are glad to give, 
uh, be together. Um, Karen, yeah, go. Yeah, go. What's his name? Scott. Scott. Hoffman. Scott Hoffman. He's got three kids. That's, and it's an advanced stage of cancer? Yes. Yeah. Scott Hoffman. God, watch over Scott. Um, what a dearness um, to suffer for you. What a dearness. There's this great outpouring from people. Um, what a great gift. Watch over this man and his family and his trials. Um, if it's your will, um, save him. And if it's time for him to go home, let his family take a joy in letting go of him to send him on. Um, I ask a, um, a special grace or a special care, St. John, um, for the work we're about to take up with you. Pray for us, please. Let your light shine upon all of us and our efforts to understand you, believing, knowing in our hearts that the more we know about the goodness of somebody, the more we love him. So um, grant your grace, your prayers, that we can love you more by all that we learn about you and love Christ even more. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord, amen. I think you all got my story about this poem. Suzanne and I woke up one morning to it and and um, every once in a while, it doesn't happen, but every once in a while I'll be so taken by a piece of music that they play in this radio, whatever station it is, um, that I sit there and just enjoy it and then I'll run to the computer because the guy usually identifies it and I'll look it up and I've only done that a couple of times and it happened this last time. And Suzanne said that um, she's known it forever and that it's often played um, during Christmas season. And I think it is, I, I just never paid attention to it. But after I heard it, I was taken by it that morning. And then when I looked at it, I was even more taken. And I was even more taken yet when I read, when I read the comment about from the uh, theologian who said what he did. I'll read it in a second. Because you know, I mean, the great irony of this is we had just finished Matthew, and Matthew, Matthew's presentation, um, you could have rephrased it in the words of Rossetti, the poem that she wrote, because she was speaking so directly to what Christ was saying. How the theologian could have questioned it is beyond me. But I, it made me enjoy the poem even more. So um, here's our plan. We will do John, the Gospel of John, for the next three weeks. I'm going to try to go at this so that um, in the third week, this is the week before Christmas when we'll take a break again, and we won't come back until first week of January, and then we'll do Revelation. Um, I'd like to try to cover John in the next three weeks. So what I'd like to do is take two and a half weeks to do John. I think it's fairly direct. I mean, there's a lot going on here, but I... Once we get to the meat of it, the rest of it will open. And then I'd like to take part of that third class um, and 
give a, a slight background on Revelation to try to open some things so that if you read Revelation over Christmas, which would be a good thing for everybody to do, it might help your readings. And I'll send on an outline, the way I do for my classes, for Revelation, so you can have that with you when you start Revelation. So the next three weeks on John, half of the last class I'll, I'll plan to use to just offer some brief thoughts on Revelation, okay? Okay, Rossetti's in the bleak midwinter. Um, I hope you all will take time to go online and Google it and, and listen to it to some musical backgrounds. I, I don't know what to recommend because I don't remember uh, what the musical, who the musical, who did the musical score for it that morning when we woke up. But yeah. 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 There are like a hundred Really? Strange. How many did you listen to? About 20. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good Thanksgiving. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you can recommend one of the musical pieces, do it. Um, oh, wait. Sorry. Sorry. Wait, wait. Sorry, Mary. I'm sorry. Can we pick up the prayers again? I'm so sorry about this. Chuck and Lori aren't here. And I, um, they just um, celebrated their daughter's wedding this last weekend, and I meant to pray for them. And um, Chuck sent me a Spotify link, and when I learned that it was Spotify, I said I'm not going to join. And but he recommended it highly. But the um, anyway, I I, um, I want to take a minute to pray. Just sorry if we can return to prayer for a minute. I'm really sorry. Um. Lord, watch over um, Lauren and Eric. Eric and Lauren, the newlyweds. Um, this is the beginning of their life together um, in a marriage. Um, watch over them, bless them, draw them closer to you. Um, the modern world is in danger. Um, Chuck and Lori's kids are on the East Coast. Um, they are hot spots for a woke culture today. So. Watch over their children, please. Um, in everything that happens, let, um, let all the um, pleasures and all the hardships draw them closer to you. And I ask for um, a grace of rest on Chuck and Lori because um, they've been really busy for the last month getting ready for this wedding. So be with them in whatever break they take. Um, let them know we um, we are with them in prayer. Amen. Mary, I'm sorry. You were going to say? Oh, I have a CD called Celtic Thunder. And they, if y'all have ever heard of them, and they have this in full on there <coughs> uh, with a little different twist. And then I, if any of you know about Love Good Music, they've come here before about 10 years ago. Uh, and there's a CD uh, called Mary and Grace, and it has an in on there, too. Send the links to me, can you, Mary? Anything that you can do to get me to them? Okay. Can you? I may have to. Thunder. You can probably do a Thunder. Okay, let's... Let's start... 
in the bleak midwinter, um, Christiana Rossetti. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan, her stood hard as iron, water like stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, breast full of milk and a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before the oxen ass and camel which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim throng the air. But his mother only, in her maiden bliss, worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give him my heart. You know that the theologian said, is it right to say that heaven cannot hold God or the earth sustain? What about heaven and earth fleeing away when he comes? What's your response to that theologian's comment? Anybody? Don't be shy. I guess I didn't interpret it negatively. To me, it's like God is so big and so great that he encompasses more than Yep. Alexis, I saw that mischievous smile of yours again. So come on, what's come on, what what is it there? I gotta Well, I don't want to talk, so I think how to You what? I have a lot. So just briefly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly my I mean. As far as sorry. Sustain, have you read C.S. Lewis's Transposition? I read that today. What, say it again, what is it? C.S. Lewis wrote Transposition, one of his. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about the sacramental. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So basically, earth cannot sustain. Earth, compared to heaven, is fact versus meaning, natural versus supernatural. It is the richer thing translated into the poorer thing. And so everything that we see, it's like a hint to us. Like a what? Hint, 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 yeah. A clue right, right. to the glory of heaven. It points to heaven. But it's not enough here. It's not enough. It's like a piano version of a Mahler symphony, is how C.S. Lewis says it. <laughs> I'm going to qualify that in a second, but I want to wait. Um, yeah, anybody else on this? I think the simple thing is to say, I mean, it's sort of what the two of you were saying, that God's, God left. I mean, you left the kingdom, come here. I mean, can heaven... Can, um, no, it couldn't, because the love is so great. I mean, what, what else is there to say except 
that love was so super abundant that it that it, it couldn't be contained by heaven. What an extraordinary picture of the love of our God. And then for, for Christ to come down, you know, to, to leave heaven, because he couldn't contain it. I mean, it goes to so many of the points that we've been making through Matthew, that the violent bared away, that Christ was overwhelmed again and again and again, when, you know, the centurion, the Samaritan woman, again and again he says, I, I, he's, there, there is not such a faith in all of Israel. In the, in the house he came for, he, he didn't see that kind of faith. So to find it in the Samaritan woman, to find it in the centurion, he said people will be coming from east and west. You know, um, it, it's, as, it's as if he, he's just overwhelmed to see how capable humans are of loving. And then it brings a greater love out of him. He heals, he does what he does. So in one, well, this is getting ahead of myself, I'm not going to get there, but it actually leads to what, what John is doing that's so special to me. But I'm, going to re I'm just going to read it through Christmas, so the next two weeks when we meet, I'm just going to read this poem because I think it's such a fitting poem. It describes Christ being born in Bethlehem, a whole heavenly order um, unable to contain its love. Christ come down because that love was so great, he could, God, it's just stunning to think about it. That love was so great, he, he could not resist coming down, even though coming down would mean a crucifixion, an unbearable kind of pain. That's how great the love was. So, so I laugh at that line, or at least the, I love the line. I was laughing at the, our God, heaven cannot hold him nor earth sustain. I think that's meant positively, that, you know, that love is so great, um, it had to go out. By the way, just, it, it, you know, just a comment. When you think about the Trinity, remember the line I gave you from St. Thomas, in the indwelling of the persons in the Trinity, two is not greater than one, and one is not less than two. Remember, we, each one is God, so each one is holy God in the Trinity of the others. If we, if we think in human terms, in terms of finite numbers, one, two, two is larger than one, four is larger than three, you know. If we think in human terms, we can't conceive that. But Thomas is so clear in using human terms to show that it's beyond. So there is this love in the Trinity for each person beyond himself. God for his Son and Spirit, um, Christ for the Father and Spirit, the Spirit for the Father and, yeah? There's this wholeness in each one of them to offer and receive the others. So part of our nature, because we're created in the image of God, part of our nature is to offer that fullness and be open to receiving it. I hope that's clear. The, the psychologists are not going to get close to that because they don't have a notion of a trinity. It should, be, it should be second hand to us. We, sh we shouldn't think about ourselves except in Trinitarian terms. We were meant to give this extraordinary love to another, the cost of which might be the cross for us sometimes, and to receive it from God, from others. It seems to me if we don't bring that into our marriages, there's a certain romance that's going to be lost, if I can put it, if I can put it that way. Certain adventure or romance. Um, okay. The same thing would be with our children. We mm -hmm. love our children. Yep, yep. 
differently but equally. Yes, yep, yep. And remember, I, I was talking about this with, I don't know if it was Chuck and Lori, when, that um, each child's different. Remember from Dante, which we're, our call is to help our children become virtuous. And ourselves, we're supposed to be practicing. This is going to come to my opening comments on um, John in a second, but we're supposed to be practicing virtue, trying to become better. When we're dealing with our kids, we should have some understanding of how they're different and how their needs are different. Each child is going to be different. To help each child become virtuous is going to ask something different in the, whatever we do with each one. One of them can be very, very timid. How do you teach a timid child to become courageous? One may be too bold at the point of being arrogant. How do you teach him humility? I mean, you know. So, yes. So the same thing should go on with our kids. We live in a world that has no sense of that. Just none. Our kids are, in one sense, our kids are just being horribly abandoned, you know, in our world today. But, okay. Um, um, I wanted to offer this thought before we started. I've got two two thoughts um, that I'd like to offer in our opening on John here. Sorry. Um, one is, um, this is a sort of general comment or thought that's a something of a summary of some of the thinking that we've done as a part of the background on the Gospels. You know that when we started I raised these questions about um, skeptical attitudes of moderns towards scripture. Um, Lots of people are leaving the church. The number of nuns is increasing. People who have no belief. America was once a country under God. It's hard to say that anymore. Um, <clears throat> I'm actually writing an article in response to a comment a priest made about um, about how important it is to get reason back. You know, um, it, it's been the 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 thread that holds together Leo the Thirteenth's encyclical, the call for natural philosophy. John Paul Regensburg, um, Benedict Regensburg, C.S. Lewis Chesterton, all of them are saying we've lost our minds. That the most important thing, one of the most important things we can do for our faith today is recover a healthy mind. The parable of the rich, or the sower, just hold on to that. Remember, the word was strewn in all of these settings. It was the rich soil in which the seed flourished. In all the others, they got pecked away. I take that to be, if we don't take care of our natural conditions, if they, so if we hold a Protestant belief that nature's corrupt, it's depraved, there's no way to get to a logos, the logos in nature. That's Benedict's whole point. That we've lost this sense of a logos. And it's answering logos in Christ. The, the belief at one time was there's this logos everywhere. It permeates nature. It's one with everything in nature. Nature's intelligible. The scientists can know it. Philosophers can know it. Poets can know it. Take that away, and what is there there to know? If you ruin that, if, if you take away the natural object of the senses, all this concrete stuff in nature, 
Where do we find the sacred? Because the sacred only appears in nature. I hope I'm clear. If you, if you spoil the mind and the body, the senses, so that everything out there is bleak or bad, where does the sacred make its appearance? The Catholic believes that nature is good. The, the sacred appears there. Every work we've read, Homer, Virgil, Dante, Boethius, Shakespeare, every work shows there's this extraordinary nature and something's always at work there, working with humans. Every work we've read had a miracle in it. Do we see that? Or are we, are we, have we lost our minds as well? What do we do to recover them? I mean, you know the whole work of this class for me is to help recover our minds and the wonder of nature. Um, anyway, I, I was, I've been thinking about um, the modern people. Um, one, of the, one of the critics I know um, doesn't believe in Christ and in some ways puts him down. Um, it's not an uncommon thing. Um, and I'm reading John, Gospel of John, and I'm aware as I read it that most of the people who would read John today would look, educated people, would look at it in terms of apocalyptic literature that was written at that time. So they would see it in terms of that literature and say, here's just another apocalyptic writer. That he's just doing with this guy called Christ what other people were doing with other people. That's what apocalyptic literature does. Are you all following? It's so easy to, if you begin with a skeptical beginning, to look at the Gospels in that light. Okay? We started there. But modern biblical criticism tends to debunk. It turns Christ into a moral figure, a prophet, not God. Am I going too fast? Okay. Okay. Um... So here, I was asking Suzanne tonight, I'm going to put the question to you. Where did John get this knowledge? To, be, to begin John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. I want to, I'm going to make an opening statement here, but I want to do it on the basis of what we're reading. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him. How did he know that? And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, that is because he's eternal life, right? He's God. He's nothing, I mean, he's uncreated life, just like the Father and the Spirit. And the life was the light of men, that's the source of all light in the world. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It will never overcome it. It can't. Where did John get that? If you're a skeptic reading John today, the likelihood is you're going to read that and say, this is just one of those other apocalyptic writings. Okay, here's where I want to go, just as a, to make a brief comment. Um, and I've said this a number of times. If you grow up Islamic, what are the chances of your converting to Christianity? If you grew up Jew, Jew, Jewish, holding to a Judaic, you know, tradition. What are the chances of your converting to Christianity? Our belief is this is the true God. So nobody else has it right, right? And you'd think, if this is the true God, why are there not hordes leaving Islam and converting? Why are there not hordes leaving Judaism and converting? It's not happening. 
That's how strong beliefs are. So why are we here? What is holding you guys to this belief? You guys following? Here's my answer. It's a compliment to you or to us. When I look at very educated people and find that the majority of educated people will not accept this, and we do, it means either we belong to a superstitious world in the past, that's their criticism, that's the world we belong to, or something else is going on with us that they don't understand. And here's what I'm going to say. <laughs> we are more reasonable, not just superstitious. If you read the scriptures, the one thing you have to say when you come away from them, you cannot doubt their historicity. You cannot. All these documents are written documenting this stuff, recording it. If you start explaining all of that stuff away, um, you're, it's going to be harder for you to explain all of that stuff away than it is for a reasonable man to justify what does go on there, using his reason. Is that clear? The other guy will go nuts because he'll have to account for a million things using his reason. The amazing thing about scripture is this. Um, we, we say the basis of our um, faith is scripture and faith itself. That's a Protestant move. The Catholic says, no, we hold faith and reason together. We should not doubt. We should not just take Christ on faith. Why not? Because he was present to our senses. This was not some God out there doing something. That's, that's why I made such a point last week of saying um, one of the paradoxes of Christianity is Christ took on our human nature. He had to experience, he couldn't, he couldn't have undertaken his mission at six months, couldn't have done it at 13. If he was going to redeem our nature, he would have had to experience all of it. He came to redeem it. Um, we believe by faith. Yes, we do. But we have the help, the support of our senses because we saw him. We put our fingers in his hole, in his wounds. We buried him. We bathed him. He healed us. So at the end of Matthew, when Christ is talking about this new apocalypse and a new heaven and earth, it's because he brought something as a human being and a God into this earth that did not exist before. And we have historical evidence of it. All these documents. So we're just, we are not blind Catholics living in some world um, with blind faith. Our faith has the support of reason everywhere. Do people see that? No, I mean, every one of those Pope, Leo XIII, John Paul, Benedict, every one of them was calling us back to reason. They're saying the modern mind has lost itself. Man, modern mind has lost its head. Every one of them was saying, we've got to recover better powers of reason in support of our faith. How, and you heard me badgering you for two years. How, how many of us can make a really good defense of our faith? Do we have those arguments in it? Do we understand them? That's why we took so much time with Chesterton or Lewis. Or This is not just a matter of blind faith. You guys are here <laughs> because your faith is so strong and because you're so sensible. Some of you. <laughs> Isn't that right? Can I hear it? I mean, I'm not a fundamental. That's where I was going. <laughs> I don't do that. I do not like it when people do that. But, but isn't that true? My goodness, isn't that true? When you think, I mean, 
when here, here's what St. Augustine said. The only way to read scripture properly is through charity. If you don't bring a charitable spirit to it, you're going to misread it because you'll pick out passages of scripture to justify yourself doing something. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to bring charity, but we're supposed to bring a good mind. This is not a matter of faith. Why are we taking time with it if it isn't partly to help understand our Lord? Because our belief is if we know more about him, our love will deepen. Anyway, those are my opening, that's one of my opening comments. So we're here, so when you start dealing with skeptics, because they're usually very bright men or women, they're very, the scoffers today are all educated. These are not dumb people. These are bright, educated people who won't believe in this. If the historicity of the Bible cannot be in doubt, it's all recorded. If you start explaining that away, you have a million things to explain away. You have a, a much harder task than the rational man who has fewer things to justify because they're all coherent with each other. So in lots of ways, you're far more sensible. I hope you all see that because most people think Catholics are idiots. They work on blind faith. Isn't that so? I'm saying this because you ought to have a humble pride if this... <laughs> In your faith, in our faith, um, it, it, it's in some ways an affirmation of the. It's an affirmation of the reason with which God endowed us. We're made in His image. God's not irrational; He's the source of reason. We are made in His image. There should be a, a humble gladness. For your good sense, you should never apologize for that. Is what I'm saying. This is just not a matter of blind faith. Our faith and reason together are extraordinary gifts. Okay. Cheryl, I can't hear you back there. You want to come closer? I'm okay. <laughs> 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 um, you talk about Catholics. It, it went through my mind because I know a lot of Catholics that just go through the ordeal, read, and faith and reason, they just put them in the club together. Yeah, right. Right. It's like they long, it's like they long for the health, like somebody wanting medicine. It's like they long for the health of the mind. Yeah. It shows that there's a goodness, a reasonableness that is natural to us that we should want. It's part of our nature. Yeah. Yep. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's inherent in us. It's in our nature. I mean, I think your example of that is a good one, that, that if you've been raised, say, skeptically or to believe something else, that your experiences in, in life will often bring you to a point where you're aware there's something missing, something's not right, and you come into the church because you, um, you find answers to your questions there or the truth 
um, that it answers all the things. It is because it is, it is Christ. It is He is the source of everything there is. So, here, let me stop. This, so, go ahead. You, how would you answer that, Bob? Well, I, I don't know if I can because I, have, you know, I come from a family of ten, and I think there's three of us yet that still practice Catholic. The rest are yeah, yeah, yep, 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 yep. So I, I, I struggle with that. I, mean, I have a brother that says that reads the Bible every day, but he went to the Baptist. It's a, it's a Bible orientation, and it's much better than the Catholic because they don't talk about the Bible. Yeah. So that's not yeah, but that's not true. Yeah. Yeah. My answer to that, I want to make this brief because I want to be, we've got to get through John here, but um, remember when we did Dante and um, we met Picarda at the level, remember Dante, when the Paradiso, Beatrice takes, so they've just left the um, Eden, the earthly paradise. Dante completed his descent into hell. He saw sin. He saw his own sins. That was, the first thing he had to do is go down. Once he saw them, he could begin to answer them. So he goes up purgatory, and at the top, um, Virgil leaves because Beatrix comes. Because human reason at that point is not enough. Virgil is an image of the best that human reason can offer. And I just think Dante's wise in that from what I know. Beatrix comes not to, um, not to replace reason, but um, to begin as a guide to show Dante there's more that reason can reveal with the help of faith. So that her reason is infused with a faith that Virgil's reason lacked. She will complete the journey. If you remember, at the, at, so in each one of the planets, he, move, he meets people who have come to greet him. So they're not separated, they're all in heaven, but they're degrees of perfection. So remember the, the women who meet Constance Picarda failed in their vows. They undercut their vows, but they're in heaven. Um, so at least the one thing that the whole Christian world has in common is a belief in Christ. You know, where it's heretical, I don't even, I don't want to touch on that, but at least that's the one thing we have in common. And I, and I would say, from my own experiences, and this is a generalization, so, you know, how much weight we give it. Um, remember, most of the people in Dante's hell were Catholics, and lots of them were priests and bishops. And Christ himself says there will be lots of people who cry, Christ, Christ, Christ. There will be Catholics in hell. There will be Baptists in hell. There will be Baptists in heaven. There will be some Baptists who would have committed their lives more completely to Christ than Catholics. You know, we, we get hints of that. Or you wouldn't have even asked the question, Bob. We get hints of that. But the final judgment is not in our hands. I mean, the, the second or the fourth commandment is don't take God's name in vain. That does, that does not mean do not swear. That is not what it means. It means you don't, talk, you don't speak for God. The ultimate outcome is in his hands, not ours. He, he can read souls infinitely. We can't. We, we, we can do well and we can screw up. So there'd be, the, whole, the whole Christian faith is a, something of a mystery. There are lots of people outside Catholicism. I grew up Greek Orthodox. You know, my own tendency is to see the Greek Orthodox world and the Protestant world in all of its denominations, high Protestant, low Protestant. It's like they're all there, but the center of it 
is the Catholic faith, even if, even if Catholics don't live it completely, even when they have it, you know. The beauty about orthodoxy is that it's sacramental, it holds on to the sacraments. Most of the Protestant world does not. Um, I, I think that's, that's a sad loss, and I don't want to go into the reasons for it right now, but let's, let's go on. I want to make my second point, the, my opening point. First one is about reading and what it says about us. Okay, I want everybody to take that seriously. Our reading of scripture is not just a matter of faith. Our reading of scripture carries a blessing in it in the sense that we give a value to reason that the rest of the world does not. Um, and I would say that even of the secular, we learn this. When, if we were reading, if we were paying attention to Chesterton, you, you know that there are things wrong with the modern scientific mind, materialist, all the qualities, I don't want to go through them. The one place in which reason is at its best is at the center of the Catholic faith. Because we don't separate it. The secular mind, the scientist will. The Protestant will. Greek Orthodox is schismatic in another sense. It holds on to the sacraments, but it's... That's, a, that's another problem, I don't want to go there. But the point that I was making, the first point was... We should not apologize for our faith. We should see that it carries with it a tremendous respect for the gifts that God's given us. The two greatest gifts are reason and free will. St. Thomas says, the freedom of the will, this is Thomas' quote, the freedom of the will is from reason. Take away reason? Right. It, I hope that's obvious. Take away reason? What options do you have? If you can't discern between things, you don't have any choices anymore. Is that clear? The root of freedom is reason. That's St. Thomas. He, in my mind, he's the center of our faith in some ways. So we don't read scripture with blind faith. We do it because our powers of reason and our bodies saw him. This is not blind. He was there. We touched him, put a finger in a hole, bathed him, um, envied around him, made him angry sometimes. <laughs> yeah? So, he, so if science is based on what is provable by the senses, there, should, there shouldn't even be a question. We're not talking about something that people imagined. It took place. So we should never, ever in our lives give up our reason in our faith. It's essential. It's part of what the Catholic faith is. If we give it up, we're going to slide off into another world. We will, we will undermine our faith in some way. We won't live it completely. Okay? The second point I wanted to make is... Um, the poem that we just read, you know, heaven couldn't contain him, and in the Gospel of John we're going to see all these miracles that take place. One of the things that Christ makes clear at the end of Matthew, and I want to, I want to begin John by going back into Matthew, I know this is getting a long way around it, but um, all of these miracles take place, these strange things, Christ performs these miracles. 
over and over and over again. He did it in Matthew. He's going to do it here in John. We have not read a work, not a work, in which something miraculous wasn't at the center of it. The Iliad, the creation of that new shield. I mean, I don't want to go back over that argument, but you are all here. You know that that's a turning moment. He's not using his mother's shield. He's not under her anymore. Each person is being created to become free under Christ. As parents, we have to learn to let go of our kids and, you know, all of us. That shield was a miraculous thing. Um, in the, in the, in the, or the Odyssey, think about all the, all the many times in which Athena helped Odysseus get out of a scrape. I, I remember just one of the ironies. Remember when Telemachus was looking for his father and Athena was next to him in the, in the form of mentor? They're going together. And they come to Nestor's house and, Nestor, and Telemachus is complaining about the suitors. And Nestor says, oh, if only Athena looked after out for you the way she did her father. Athena's right there. God is always around us. I'm saying this really honestly. How often do we see it? The Iliad, the Odyssey, Aeneid. We talk at the end of the Aeneid with all those converging realities in Italy at the pass where Aeneas is going to be attacked and miraculously Turnus leaves and Aeneas is spared. There's a dozen realities. If a dozen things are going on at once, it's not an accident. It's not a chain of coincidence. It means something's going on that can't be explained by coincidence. Every single work we've read. Boethius is on the point of despair. He's not going to kill himself, but he's on the point of despair. Suddenly, light comes. I want to go back to this because this is crucial. If I miss this in the next, hold on. Just say memory. Um, Boethius has help. Dante's on the, um, in danger of being damned. Suddenly help comes. And it's in the form of Virgil and Beatrice. I mean, uh, yeah, Beatrice, right? Think about the number of miracles we encountered in Shakespeare. Helena, Portia, we can go on. That amazing um, vision that Cleopatra had of Anthony, larger than the stars, you know, because she was seeing him in his soul, that the human soul, the, this is St. Thomas, the human soul is greater than the entire physical universe. The image of Mary in um, the um, rosary, the moon, the sun, you know, those are not just poetic images. Interesting, in almost every one of these pieces, the, the girl who pricked herself, remember? Hopkins in the wind hover, the bird who buckles, and in that moment he sees Christ. There is not a work that we've read that doesn't show something amazing going on in the physical world around us. How much are we in our heads today and preventing us from seeing, from feeling a wonder in the things going on around us? And as Catholics, we've been given more reasons to wonder than anybody else in the world. I should end class on that note and we should all go home. <laughs> God. Here's the interesting thing about every one of those works. Homer, Virgil, Boethius, Dante, every one of the great epics. In the modern world with, with Moby Dick, we're going to see something different. But every one of those epics begins in, the, in a poet making a prayer, an invocation of mimosine, 
memory. Now stop and think about this for just a second. The miraculous that I'm talking about in every one of those great epics depends on memory. Holding on to something in the past. When we did Boethius, we talked about anamnesis. Anamnesis, the, the recalling of the past. At the center of every one of our masses is a moment of anamnesis. Um, do not forget me, forget me not. We, we don't look at the Eucharist as a celebration just in um, commemoration. We are recalling Christ in memory and joining him in the present now. In every one of the epics we read, memory was coming to the aid. Something from the past was made present in the time of the epic. So memory came as an aid, a help, over and over and over again. Could Boethius have gotten along without Lady Philosophy coming to him? He carried all that in memory. It's there. The help was there. How often do we use it? When Dante was in danger of being damned, he wanted to go up the mountain on his own. He couldn't. Who comes? Virgil, out of his memory. Beatrice, who's dead, out of his memory. We've been given these extraordinary things in the past to help make us capable of a wonder in the present. So in every work we've read, we've been experiencing miracles, extraordinary things. Now, why am I focusing on this to begin our class today? Go back to Matthew. Um, Christ is giving these apocalyptic statements. He's going to leave very soon, and the disciples want to know when, what's going to happen. And um, Jesus answered them. This is 24.3. Take heed that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. They will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. He goes on. Go down. Um, then they will deliver you up. He's saying this to the disciples. You're not going to escape. You're not going to have a comfortable life. You're not going to be at peace. You're not going to be comfortable. Then many will fall away. That's Christ. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. That's the sower parable again in another form. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We're to remember this because it's being preached. It will be passed on. So when you see the desolating sacrilege spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing at the holy place, he goes on, um, hold on to that. Alas for those who are with child and for those who give suck in those days. Because lots of women are going to say, wait, not now. And Christ is saying, now. It, it, the love of a woman for a child cannot stop him. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been um, from the beginning of the world until now. No, 
and never shall be. And if those days had not been shortened, no human being would be saved because they'd be too painful. What's coming is going to be awful. Lo, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, Lo, he's in the wilderness, do, God, do not go out. If they say, Lo, he's there. If they tell you, find Christ here, find Christ there, do not. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered. This is a prophecy of the second coming, the parousia. Remember, we've talked about that often. Every epic ends with a parousia. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, um, moon will give its, not give its light, stars will fall. Um, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds. So there will be a second coming, he will come again. But then he says, and here's where I wanted to pick up with Matthew before we go to John. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. You know from, I think it was the reading this last week or a couple weeks ago in Revelation, a new heaven, new earth. John's showing a, the coming of a new heaven. Christ is saying, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away. All these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. What's he saying? We ended class, and I, so I'm asking just to recall for a minute, but is it clear what Christ is saying right now let me jump on this because I'm going to go to John I think he's saying um, all that he's talking about in one there will be another coming but at least at this point um, all that he's talking about is going to take a new order because he is about to redeem man he's going to bring atonement to fulfillment He's going to die and rise again. When he dies and rises again, he will have answered our original sin. He will have defeated sin and death. He will have answered the entire order that was made, put astray, went astray with the fall. With his crucifixion and resurrection, he issued in a new heaven, new earth. We're going to see that in Revelation. Revelation is going to say the same thing. Do we live that way? Do all of us live our faith aware that a new heaven and a new earth is around us? Hopkins was. Shakespeare, Dante, all these people have been. Do we live our lives full of wonder, aware? Because most of the modern world, most, most minds, right, are going to, the modern mind is going to say random nothingness, chance, no meaning, no God, there's nothing but matter, um, evolution, we're just a stage in these impersonal forces we can understand. You know, we read all of that in Chesterton and Lewis, so. How many of us actually live believing that in this moment, all of this will happen, all of this will take place? 
So also know when you see these things, you know that he's near the gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. He is issuing in a new order. Every one of the poets that we've read has expressed a wonder at something miraculous going on. Do we live our faith? We, so here, we take the Eucharist daily, weekly. Lots of people are leaving the Catholic Church because they cease to believe that that's a miracle. Except our belief is that keeps alive this new... Take the Eucharist away and there's no new order. Right? And, he, and, and we're John, he's going to have the bread of life. Just, he said, I'm the bread, I'm the wine. Eat, you know, drink of me, eat of me. A whole new order has come into being that is, by its very nature, miraculous. How many people raised in the sciences will look at anything going on in the world as miraculous? Let me stop. Is that, is everybody following? So, um, here's our faith. This is our faith. Um, that's why the sacraments are so important. God has answered it all. Otherwise, how could he forgive us if we go to confession? And how could we, re you know, so many people have said this. Every, every time we eat, we turn the food that we consume into ourselves. It becomes part of us. Every time we receive Christ, we become part of him. We're entering into a divine life. How many of us actually live that way with an overwhelming gratitude or gladness or joy that, that we're in a new heaven and a new earth? Because there's nothing in the world surrounding us that says that. No? You all look so quiet, I'm probably doing too much here. My wife is making faces at me. Let me stop. Any questions or comments? I thought maybe Jesus was talking here also about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Yeah. Because he's telling you when you see these things, flee to the mountains. You're right. And that's what a lot of the Christians yeah. did. Yeah. 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 And he wept. Remember when he looked down in Jerusalem knowing that it would be destroyed? He was weeping. Um, Okay, what's at the center of our faith is this wonderful affirmation of reason. It's one of the great gifts God gave us. Our belief is it's wounded, it's weakened. We can use it badly. We do all the time. We do not believe it's corrupted. I hope that's clear. God, God made us good in essence. That's the beginning of Genesis. Good, 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 good. He made us in his image. He endowed us with... Um, reason and free will. We're made in his image. God is the source of everything rational. We believe we were wounded in our fall, not made depraved, not corrupt. So we use reason badly a lot um, in our weaknesses, but we're encouraged in our faith to become virtuous, to grow in understanding and knowing that um, the two support each other, that our faith will help us to understand mysteries of our faith, that our faith will illumine reason, that those two things work hand in hand, okay? 
Okay, just last two things quickly before we go to John. Um, if you go back to 22, um, at the end of um, at the end of 22, there are those. Um, um, the damning indictments um, if you got my notes you'll see them um, on the second page but you but you, you don't have to turn to them just um, thank goodness word okay well um, if you if you go to um, 20 um, 21 and 22, you'll see Christ in great, engaging the Jewish leaders in a number of questions and exchanges. And in every one of them, when Christ answers their challenge to him, and he presents them with um, a question, they can't answer it. Remember, I, I call these the five um, controversial topics. Um, I want to just look at the last one on in 22, say about 41. A lawyer comes and questions him about the commandments, which is the best, and Christ answers them. Um, and then it goes on. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think of the Christ? So this is the last of a series of controversies that Christ engages in with the Jewish leaders. You remember, we, this is where we went. The Sadducees, the Pharisees. Um, here's a, um, a lawyer, a man of the law. He says, um, what do you, what do you, What's your understanding of Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? If he's his son, how can he be his Lord? Because the Lord would come before a son. So how can a son who comes afterwards also be a Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I put thy enemies under thy feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one, able, no one is able to answer him. A word from that day, did anyone dare to answer the questions? And then he, he will go on. I think there are six or seven or eight. Woe, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. I mean, these can't be more damning. Um, these are men filled with a sense of who they are outside. But the, the point I wanted to underscore in all of this is he, he engages in these five controversies, and in every one of them, when he asks them the question, they can't answer it. These are the men of the law, and he will say to them, you are the men of the law, and you do not understand God. So this is the basis of their religion. He's confronted them with their central beliefs, put questions to him, he puts questions to them and they can't answer. What they show is that they do not know the law. These are the Jewish leaders. In a sense, I mean, the inference is they do not know God. And we're going to see this immediately in John. Okay? 
let me stop. Any questions about any of those before we um, we turn to John? We didn't spend any time on the Passion because I think you all know it. What I wanted to do is focus on some of those things that seem to me um, it's like the heightened drama when Christ confronts all the Jewish leaders. He exposes their failings and it seems that one of the questions that I raised for us last week is Paul said the veil had fallen over Judaism. The Jews had really, without seeing it, lost their God. And the question it seems to me we should be asking ourselves is, is that true for us? Has the veil called fallen over us? We take, do we take Christ for granted? Are we living him? How fully are we? Um, if he were present, would he be engaging us to show us what we don't understand or what we're not living? Um, so, any questions? We'll start, John. Okay. I'm going to do something tonight that I'm, I'm not, I mean, it's not sort of typical of what I do, but what I would like to do is try to read through the first chapters of John, just sketchily. I want to just touch on some, and here's my question that I'm going to, that's behind all of what I'm going to do. I want to go through as much of John as I can, and then I want to, I want to end this, our work on these first seven chapters with this question. What is it that John is doing that's different from the Synoptic Gospels? We haven't read Mark and Luke. We've read Matthew, but that's enough. I mean, um, what is it that John is doing that's different? Because they're both presenting Christ. They're both Gospels. They're both historical accounts of what happened when Christ was on earth. Why are the Synoptic Gospels grouped together and separated from John? What is it that separates them, that makes it different? And what do we learn about Christ that's different in each of them? So what do we take away about Christ from Matthew? And what do we take away about Christ from John? What surfaces, what are we seeing about Christ that one gives us and the other doesn't? Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to rush through um, the chapters. So I'm going to be sketching along, if, and I, I, you can try to follow me or not, but I'm going to try to just quickly move through passages. John begins with this description of Christ in heaven. Now, that in itself is already mysterious enough, but it's going to begin with um, John the Baptist, and um, it, the, John's Gospel is going to begin with John baptizing Christ, and he, know, he knows he was sent into the world to prepare the way for Christ. And he says, he, he says as much on the day that he baptizes him. And in the next day he says, behold the Lamb of God. So twice, I think of the baptism day and the day after he says, behold the Lamb of God. So John is referring to Christ as the Messiah, the Lamb that the Jewish world was waiting for that would be the sacrificial lamb. He already knows that. So one question is, these, these are, just hold on, because I want to take time, but one is, how did John know this, the beginning? 
in the beginning was the Word. He was the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, how did he know that? And how does John, after he baptizes Christ, say, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is he who said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, for he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed. He will baptize in spirit. How did John the Baptist know all that? Because the modern skeptic is going to go nuts on this stuff. He's going to say, he's going to say this belongs to all that apocalyptic literature. This is just another piece of apocalypse that these people created in their own heads. So John describes the word. The Logos, the Word, the lo that reason itself, the Logos, the Word. And the interesting thing, this is the reason that was, that was such an important address for Benedict when he said, his great concern for the modern world was the absence of the Logos with the fundamentalist Christian, the Christian, and for the Islam, because they did away with the Logos. How could John be as clear as he is in describing the word, the logos, the word, reason, if he himself didn't participate in reason. It's the logos at work in John. Huh, see? Would you say infused, just infused knowledge? Well, hold on to it, Connie, but yeah, it's the question, I mean, but, but do you see that he, he couldn't do this unless he participated in it? How can he make it clear? The logos, the logos... The, well, but, but remember, the Logos was real for the Greeks. They didn't understand the Logos the way we do, but the Logos came from the Greeks. The word, this reason, a word, the, the epic. Remember, we talked about this, the Logos. Homer um, um, makes the invocation to the gods to speak to him, to have a word. That word is an epic, a Logos, a word. It's reason itself. So Homer makes that appeal believing that there's this Logos they share. Otherwise, how could he tell a story? How could John do this if the Logos wasn't alive in him? It's reason answering reason when one reason is the source of all reason itself. You know? But the Logos is present. My point is, this would all be jumble, sheer nothing. It would be scrambled. It's not. It's perfectly intelligible. It's, per it's full of light. It shows reason, it appeals to our reason, we can understand it, and it strengthens our faith. This is the basis of our faith. So here at the beginning is the Logos answering the Logos. A word describing Christ, the word itself. So John goes on, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This goes back to the statement I made a while ago. When I think about, it sort of shakes me. I was, I was doing everything I could to affirm the place of reason in our faith. I hope it's clear that it seems to me one reason we are all here reading scripture as we do is because it's a grace from God. I don't think reason alone would get us here. 
as great as it is. That is, I hope, it, I'm, I don't know that I can say this strongly enough, we're only here doing this because we believe in Scripture the way we do, and we only believe it because that's a grace given to us from God. That is just not our own powers. Remember when we did Dante, when Dante went into hell, he was unconscious. When he went up purgatory, he was unconscious. The first steps into sin are too deep for us. The first movements into grace are too deep for us. There's, um, Maritain calls it, Freud, Freud understood nothing of the spiritual unconscious. Freud understood the physical, the animal unconscious. He understood nothing about the spiritual unconscious. For that, you have to go to the depth, the mystics. You have to go to the depths of the church. We wouldn't be here reading scripture except by the grace of God. That's a gift. Um, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. This is not just by our own will, but of God. This is what he says to Nicodemus. How do you become born again? Of the Spirit. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And, and asked if he was Elijah. And he said, No, he's come to make straight the way of the one coming. He's preparing the way for Christ. Um, on the day of the baptism, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. The day afterwards when he says... Um, the next day again, John was, this is 35, 135. John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And that's when um, the, the disciples begin to follow Christ. Um, In chapter 2, you all know this, this is the first, um, the Cana um, wedding. If you go to 2, about line 10 or so, every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, freely then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. This is the first of what will be seven or eight signs that will make up the body of John's Gospel. John calls them signs. This is the first. Okay. Um, Nicodemus comes to him, and Christ um, talks about being reborn, and he says, "How can you be reborn? You can't jump into your mother's womb again." Um, this is in chapter three, the beginning. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born anew. The wind blows where it wills. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Once we enter the life of the spirit, we enter into a world of mysteries. We don't know what God will ask of us. The question is, are our wills open to him to do what he wants us to do? Um, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If you don't take care of your natural gifts, here we are in the incarnate. Remember, Christ, the incarnation means a, a perfect marriage between our nature, our human nature, and divine. 
If we do not take care of our human nature, the natural basis of it, how will it not cripple our faith? If you can't believe these natural things, how in the world are you going to believe we're, we're called to relate to the natural world because it's there through which the miraculous comes to us? Um, in, um, so in 4.1, Christ heals the son of the father um, let's see, this is um, 446. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he'd made the water, wine, and Capernaum there when a, an official whose son was ill, when he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was the point of death. Jesus therefore said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's that sort of divine scorn that people need. As the official said to him, Sir, come down before my children, child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man goes back and finds his. By the way, this reminds me so much of the, of the uh, centurion. Remember the centurion says, um, Heal. There's, there's something really interesting here, and it goes to this whole thing about modern skeptics. In Matthew... Um, the centurion um, episode takes place when the centurion approaches him and asks Jesus to heal his servant. And he, he says, um, you're, I'm not worthy to enter. And he says, do it. And it's at that point that Christ says, I've not seen such faith in Israel. He's amazed by it. He's overcome. He heals the son. And this in Luke, we get a very different account. So hold on to this. Because in Luke, it says... Um, the, the centurion sent to the Jewish leaders and the Jewish leaders wanted to support him because he built a synagogue for them. So they wanted to reciprocate. So they send lead, leaders um, to him and he sends leaders um, to Christ. So it's two different accounts. They don't square with each other. The, the, the slave is healed in both of them. But in one of them um, um, Nicodemus comes to Christ and the others um, he sends leaders, he sends people to the Jewish leaders, they send people to Christ, and um, Nicodemus isn't there. Christ gets it in directly. So here's two different accounts. I don't want to go into that. It's these sorts of things that make skeptics go, are you kidding? These don't match up, because they're, they're numerous. Um, he heals the boy, and then he says at the end of 4, chapter 4, 50 or so. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. He himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did. John's counting them up. Um, in 540 or so, 535 or so. Um, he's been challenged by the Jewish leaders again about his authority and where he gets it. Christ says he's not speaking on his own. He's not saying anything he didn't get from his father. About 35 or so. But the testimony which I have is greater than that of John for the works which the father has granted me 
to accomplish these very works which I am doing bear me witness that the Father has sent me and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness to me his voice you have never heard remember the passage we just read in Matthew where he says you don't even know the law you don't know God you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness to me if they've read scriptures they should see him everybody following and, and once again I mean it's another one of the things I keep harping how well do we read these men are really good readers of scripture really they're they're the best educated people in the world then they've read scripture and they don't recognize Christ you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life and that and that they, so the people who believe sola scriptura scripture alone read scripture and you're saved Christ is saying, I hope everybody's hearing this, today, sola scripture, the Protestant world, the two solas, well, there were five of them, but two of them were faith, fide, sola fidea, faith alone, sola scripture, scripture alone. That's all you need. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men. But I know that you have not the love of God within you. The first commandment God gave Moses was love God above all things. Love was, the, love was at the basis of the commandments. Um, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me if another comes in his own name him you will receive how can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God do not think that I shall accuse you to the father it's Moses who accuses you if you believed Moses you would believe me the fact that they don't believe means they do not read Moses properly After the, Jesus went to the other side, um, the sea, and a multitude followed him because they saw the signs which he did. They're constantly seeking for signs. Um, this is when he um, walks on the water in chapter 6. And the disciples are astounded. Um, 6.25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they came to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, truly, truly. I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Now this is where it gets a little bit heavy, so I want to just slow down and um, so we take this in carefully. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life. Go down, then they said, what must we do? Um, Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he, was, whom he has sent. That's Christ. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see that, you, that believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it's written, he gave them bread from heaven. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread. Go down. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Um, go down again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up. That is, it's a grace given. Um, not, not everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to, ye, to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is, from the bread, this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Um, go down a few lines. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now lots of people are going to say that what Christ is talking about is figurative in spirit. That we're to understand that he is figuratively the bread. So that if we do not receive his word or him, that we will perish. Um, and it's on that basis that people have done away with the sacraments. They're not to be taken literally true, okay? Just hold on to that for a second. Um, go down about 60. Now, lots of the, remember, because to eat, to drink blood, eat blood for the Jews was sacrilegious. So the idea that Christ would say, eat my flesh, drink my blood, um, would be cannibalistic. They would see that as a horrific act. So for Christ to claim this would give them every reason to turn away. Okay. Um, many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life the flesh. It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. So, we're not to take him literally true to eat his body or drink his blood. That should be taken figuratively in spirit. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first um, who those were that did not believe and who, who it was that should betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, will you also go? So there are these murmuring, this group of murmuring disciples who leave. These are disciples. This is how important this is, the blood and body of Christ. These are disciples. And on hearing that, men who've been their disciples, his disciples leave. Okay. Um, I wanted to look at the Samaritan woman, but if, if, if you can just hold on it, one of the episodes here in John is that he goes to the Samaritan woman and asks for a drink, and she is shocked that um, as a Jew he would 
engage with a Samaritan and he mentions the husband inside and she says truly you're a prophet that he would have known that and he said um, and this man's not your husband you've had several husbands and so she knows that he's a prophet and she what this is really important she um, at, it's at that point just hearing that this is in, this is actually in John 4 but around 40 or so hearing that she believes she says to believe I want the water of life okay this is 439. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of all the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. This is not the house of Israel. He's staying with the Samaritans. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of your words, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. So just on the basis of it wasn't, well, first it was hearing her, but then it was actually being present with Christ. All of these things are happening. He feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6, and he walks on water on 6. Okay? Um, go to 7.25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is it not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Yet we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Jesus proclaimed, You know me, but do you know where I come from? God, the irony is the Christ came from Bethlehem, but he also came from God. Um... Um, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they sought to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd. Um, Jesus says, to, I shall be with you a little longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am. He said, where I am. Okay? Because one of, the, one of the things that makes up the John's Gospel is Christ repeatedly says, I am. I'm the bread of... Hey, listen to this. Just hold on. I'm the, I am here. Where are those words. I shall be with you a little longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will... Seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. That's in a present tense. Where I am, you cannot come. Wherever that's going to be, he seeks about it in, in a, I am, as a place. Whatever that is, you, you won't find me there. You can't come there. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? Um, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up. This is um, saying again, to the people, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now this is he, this, now this he said about the spirit, which those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there's still a question hanging over us when he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Are we to take that figuratively because the spirit has not come yet? Um, when Jesus, they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? 
um, as not the scripture said that Christ is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem. All these questions are being raised by people and they're confused. Um, the, the priests send officers, um, they come back, the Pharisees answer them, are you led astray, you also? Have any of you authorities or any of the Pharisees believed in him, but this crowd who do not know the law are accursed? The Pharisees hate Christ, and they have nothing but contempt for anybody who seems to believe, the officers, the crowds, um, as if they're gullible people. Um, and the irony here is we've seen what Christ does with the, um, the lawyer and the law. Um, the crowd who does not know the law are accursed. These people claim to know the law, and we've already seen from what Christ has said, they don't know the law at all. Um, and it ends with this brief um, exchange with Nicodemus, who interrupts the Pharisees and says, don't judge a man without bringing him to trial yet. So up to this point, we've had a number of passages in which Christ says, I am, I am the bread of life. I go to a place, I am, I go to a place where I am, where you cannot go. I am the light of the world. He will say later, I am the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the way, the truth. I am the real vine. Okay, those are, those are the major episodes in John. And almost every one of them centers on a statement that Jesus makes saying, I am this. Now let me stop, just to, I know that's a terrible rush through, but I want to get to this question. What's the difference between Matthew's presentation of Christ and John's? Why is John set aside? What's the difference here? Each shows us something different about Christ. How do they do that? What is John doing that's different from what Matthew does? Anybody else? Matthew seems more direct in storytelling. Like it, it, it's like a story, and it's just like this event, and this event, and this yep, event. Yep, exactly. John, we get a lot more exposition, a lot more explanation, context. Justify that, defend that. Um, give, give me a couple of examples. Yep. 
you delve into them deeper. Whereas if you look at Matthew, it's like little right, short, right, little short right, right. Is everybody following? I think that's pretty accurate. Matthew develops by episodes. It's episodic, episode after episode, parable after parable. He's just described. He's very faithful to what Christ did. So his focus is on events, event after event after event, and they're multiple. There's just a lot. In fact, it's hard to number them. There's a lot. And through them, we see Christ. In John, um, it isn't as episodic. He focuses on a limited number of episodes, but in every one of those episodes, the focus is on Christ going, in me you see the Father. Now, what's the difference between that? Because you get a, it can be Nicodemus or the wound of the... You know, and later, when, next week, when we meet, we'll go through some of them. But in every one of those episodes, we, um, John fleshes it out so it's real to us. But the focus is Christ himself saying, In me you see the Father, you think you know the Father. If you did, you would have known me. You don't know me, you don't know the Father. What's the force? Set that against Matthew. What's the force of that gospel, John's gospel, when we put all of those together? Go ahead. Is that... Is that a hand? I can't. Go. Well, building on what Mary said. So he's emphasizing that we learn the nature of his divinity, but we explore the nature of that divinity. What kind of God is this? Um, a deeper, greater understanding of Christ and the Father, all the I am statements. Present. All the metaphors he uses to help us understand from every angle, really, to, to reach all of us in different ways. Present. It's all present. The kingdom is present. You know, I go back to that thing where he said, new heaven, new earth. It, it's not there. He hasn't gone, in John, he hasn't gone, but John already knows the story in the beginning. I mean, he knows what's going to happen. But it's interesting. He knows the end. You know that Christ is going to die, and so a new heaven and new earth, this, um, um, all of this will happen before this generation passes away. In every one of those episodes, we see the Father and the, all the mysteries of the kingdom present. They're there. The kingdom's there. If the Jews knew their scriptures, they say they do, or readers of scripture, they'd know this is a new heaven, new earth, that it, or it's unfolding, it's you know, right before their eyes. The kingdom's there. If you knew the Father, you'd know me. You'd see it. They're trying to think about the implications of that. They're trying to kill him. They want to kill him. What does that say about their religious belief? The kingdom is there. That, remember the opening chapter in John Paul's Fide Orazio. And how was it? Christ the Revealer. John Paul was making the point. The kingdom's revealed. All the, all the mystery that go back to the opening chapters of Fide Orazio. You all got it. Go back and look at the opening chapter. He revealed the kingdom. That was one of the major points of Fide Orazio. Kingdom's there. How many see it? To put it differently, how is the legalistic spirit they bring to their reading of Scripture blinding them, distorting the way they see Christ? They are all educated readers. Yeah, these are not dumb people. How has their reading of Scripture distorted the way they see God or live Him? And he says, you don't love. Remember that passage I read where he says, you don't have the love of God in you. 
So one of the interesting things that's going on that makes John different is it's not as episodic. He's letting Christ reveal himself in the Father. The kingdom is there. All the mysteries are there. Alexis put it, I mean, you know, we get various aspects of the kingdom present. The kingdom's there. God is showing himself. <laughs> Think about what it says about that religion that they don't want to admit that. Because to admit that would mean everything they believe in is wrong. So there's a serious drama. It, I mean, the, it, it, you know, if we put Matthew and John together, there's a serious drama. This man is going to be killed. He's going to be executed. And we're watching all of these forces gathering around him. They're trying to trick him. They try to trap him. At the end of Matthew, remember, they're trying to trick him by the questions they would ask. And every one of them, Christ would end with a question showing they don't know what they're talking about. He even said, you're the, you're the holders of the law, and you don't even know the law. And now these people who don't know the law are gathering around him. And this is, in, in, um, and, and this is, this is God on earth. I mean, it's the kingdom is there. Remember that passage that we read last week in Matthew, um, I think it's in Matthew 8, it is in Matthew 8, where um, Christ is asking the disciples about John and who do they think he is and who the people think he is and they're describing as this Isaiah, is it, you know, who is it? And um, in fact, I'll, I'll read it because it's, um, it's one of those passages that get, um, has so many interpretations of it. And I offered one that um, the medievals would have had. Um, the Christian Middle Ages would have read it more like this than we in our world. But um, oh, uh, where's uh oh? Yeah, this is in eleven, um, eleven, seven, and following. Um, why did you go out to the wilderness? Why did you go? See, did you go for a drama show to watch this prophet do what he does? Um, what did you go out into the wilderness to behold? A reed shaken in the wind. Why did you go out to see a man clothed with soft raiment, the kind you see at court? Behold, those who wear soft raiment are kings' houses. Why then did you go out? Boy, there's an element of real rebuke often in Christ. I mean, this is this is divine anger that's. To see a prophet, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way before thee. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and men of violence take it away. I think about that line from the poem, Um, particularly in light of the way you guys put it, because I thought it was, you guys put it really well. Our God heaven cannot hold him. <laughs> it's like Christ could not contain his love. He came for the house of Israel. They're all rejecting him. He goes to the, or the centurion comes to him. He goes to the Samaritan woman. He goes to a number of these people. And he's absolutely overcome by their love. This heaven can't contain itself. And these people overwhelm him. They take him away. Um, 
So um, there's a strange drama going on here in John. Um, John is letting Christ speak for himself. Um, you've said it. Matthew is more like a novelist. He's or a novelist of events. It's an episodic novel. Matthew is showing event after event after event. In John, Christ, John is letting Christ speak for himself. So there's only a relatively small number of episodes. But in every one of them, what's at the center of those episodes is Christ speaking for himself and relating him to every aspect of the Father. He came for this reason, for this reason, to show this, for this reason. So he's showing the kingdom and he's saying, you search scriptures and you think you find me? God's right in front of them. How well do we read, any of us? How well do we read? Is our reading getting in the way? Yeah, Paul, go. Yeah. 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 And let me offer a follow-up on that. I'm so glad you said that, John, because I, I would have forgotten. Remember I asked you the question earlier, where did John get this knowledge? Where did, how, how in the world could he... This is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and he was with God. And How in the world did he get that? Here's... I'm going to offer a... Why are you smiling? Go ahead, you guys... Because I want to see what you're going to say. No, I think... I'm talking about the two mischievous... Come on, I want to hear. Alexis, come on. Come on. No, I'm enjoying the... See? From leaning against his heart. From what? Leaning against Jesus' heart. Oh. Relationship. Yeah. He was at the Transfiguration, and it was always Peter, James, and John. So he was, he had some, a closer relationship. If, I believe that, if, think about this, I mean... Skeptics go, how, how in the world would this guy have known? Yeah? If you'd been around Christ and you loved him deeply, um, and you saw him do what he did, and you heard his words, and, because I, I think John's the most theological-minded, I mean, the one whose spiritual orientation is um, mystical, metaphysical, otherworldly. It's that Greek sense. Um, it's much more Greek. Um, but it's a part of who he is. If you're that kind of person, you're in the presence of Christ, and you see Christ do all these things, what was he revealing about himself that other people wouldn't have seen that John did? Because if you hear Christ seriously, taking him the way I'm trying to present him here, saying I am, you know, with all the... Um, it seems to me that it, it's not a stretch to see that that person would naturally infer, would see... These are the implications of it. He would see the depths of it that way because Christ was revealing it. He sees that divine aspect of him. That's why when he writes the Gospel of Christ, his focus is there. That Christ is revealing the kingdom in everything he does. How, how, many, how many of the Jews saw it? How many of his disciples saw it? You know, he's constantly saying, do I have to put up with you? How much longer do I have to, you know... They're with him all the time, and they're still asking for signs. It's sorry. Go. One last thing. Um, he was the only one of the gospel writers who stood at the foot of the cross. So perhaps there, at the consummation, 
he was able to put things together that the others were not. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the point here is he put a lot of things together, but when you put them all together, Son of God, he is who he says he was, he's, you know, that he's seeing things. If you're a good novelist, I mean, you're dealing with or Shakespeare, a dramatist or something, and you put a lot of things together in your characters, you can, you can give a character development to somebody deeper than other authors because you see more. So... I, I'm not offering that as a definitive answer. I'm just saying, you know, for people who say, how in the world does he know? You know, there are things we can say here. They may not be definitive or complete, but, but clearly John saw a divine aspect that Christ was revealing the kingdom. It was present there. And, and he was aware enough of the ironies to bring it out because the, the Jewish leaders and the other people don't. They want to kill him. So there's this terrible drama unfolding. We've, it's, it's, it's stunning to see the force of it. You've got the kingdom emerging. The Father is present in his Son. He's being revealed. Christ is revealing. He's come, he's come for the house of Israel. Um, the house of Israel has turned its back on Christ. He's finding this great love, and he's saying people will come from the east and the west. But he knows that, that people will believe. But the house of Israel has rejected him. And he's saying, you don't know the law. You don't know love. And you know that he's going to, I mean, I read that line. I'll read it again next week. He's going he's to have severe words. He's going to reject them in favor of the Gentiles. Suddenly he's going to open up his mission to everybody. But right now, the kingdom is here. Christ has revealed it. It's fully present. John saw it. The whole point of John is to make that kingdom present. And if it's present, remember at the new heaven, new earth? If it's present, when we go to confession, when we take the Eucharist, do we participate in that with a real sense, this is a new heaven and earth, that something extraordinary is going, or are we just receiving? You know, just... So, what the Gospels are showing us are pretty powerful, I think, at this point. We'll do the next eight or ten chapters next week. Pay attention to all the IMs and take a look. See if you can number the number of episodes. Count the number of episodes. Because they're going to be relatively few. And, and I, because um, Heather was right on. John will let Christ speak for himself, but he will also be adding his response to help clarify what's going on. Count the number of episodes of what? You said count the number of episodes. Episodes. Count the number of episodes in John. Okay, so separate episodes. Yeah, just where these episodes where Christ is saying, I am, I am, I am, I am. Because it's not as episodic as Matthew. It's, um, it's a very different gospel.